Okay, welcome back to What Is and What Could Be with Michael Clark Architect. It's a pleasure to be back with you here again. And I'm going to start this episode with a, an apology. It has been, I've just looked, two months between episodes. November was when episode 14 came out. I am still here. I have content. I have guests lined up. However, I was committed towards the end of 2022. So when I say November, I'm saying November 2022. I'm recording this in February 2023. But in November 2022, when the last episode was released, I was committed to a cause, a cause of submitting five development applications, town planning applications to the consent authority, in this case, in all those cases, local government. And I was committed to getting five out. That started around October. I got one out in October, another out in November, and I'd come to December hell-bent on getting the remaining three. I got close with one, but no cigar, as they say. Had a curveball I couldn't reconcile. The second one, I was even closer, but in the last week of, of uh, the last working week of the year before Christmas, because I did take Christmas off, I got another curveball. And then the final one, it was really down to the wire. It was literally as they say in basketball and maybe in sports, other sports, that it was a buzzer beater. And I'm grateful for some consultants I've worked with that were able to assist me in my need of hours, so to speak. And I did get that application in and I did get the prompt from the New South Wales Department of Planning portal that confirms the lodgement as successful with a little bit of a, a box and notes on the screen that have a green background and green has connotations for me and I'm sure many people of you know success green means go green traffic lights it also reminded me of when I got my provisional driver's license a little while ago now as a as a teenager I was one of those people that got it as soon as I was eligible I was keen for the autonomy associated with getting your driver's license Anyway, uh, when you pass that written exam, which was on a computer and you've got this little, you know, uh, graphic on screen that reminds you of computer games, finishing a computer game or getting a high score on a computer game, whatever it might be. And it was green, might not have been green to be honest, but it felt like, well done, you've achieved something, great result. And even though the Department of Planning doesn't uh, applaud your submission or have exclamation marks or any interesting font necessarily, it did feel satisfying to get that notification, which confirmed that the holiday could start. Anyway, the holiday started and I felt like I had got close to the mission as being successful. Three out of five ain't bad, so they say. I think that's a song, two out of three ain't bad. Anyway, someone can correct me on that. Off topic, I'm, come back to point, Michael. That was why there was a bit of gap between proceedings, but here I am now in February 2023. Happy New Year. I know it's a bit of a strange thing. Maybe in February, the first week of February, to still be saying Happy Calendar New Year, but it's an interesting topic, isn't it? At what point do you say, you know what, the year has started and I haven't spoken to this person who I may be addressing, thinking of a salutation all year, but five weeks you're probably in denial as to whether the year is in fact still new. I think you're clutching at straws. Anyway, I'm going to say it to 
those of you that are listening, thank you for being here in this podcast series where we talk through what it feels like to collaborate with an architect and what is involved in realizing an architectural project. We talk through the thinking behind the design of spaces and places. And today we're ending the discussion thread that I started in episode one, which is an answer to the question of why. Why work with an architect? What is the benefit? What is the value that an architect can add to the realization of a project, a place, a space? And I was answering that two ways. One, let's talk about what an architect does as of 2022 when I started, continuing now to 2023 in the area I work, which is New South Wales, Australia. Doesn't have to be limited to that, by the way, if anyone's listening and you're keen on a project overseas, I'm, I'm all for that. However, the bulk of my work at the moment anyway is in New South Wales, Australia. So what are the core architectural services, what we call core architectural services provided in New South Wales, Australia, which is standard services, most common services, what the industry, the profession at large consider to be the normal services provided by an architect. It doesn't mean it's the only services, doesn't mean that if for whatever reason you are an architect or you're working with an architect that doesn't provide one of these services that that's necessarily a problem. I'm not going to judge that. I'm just giving a collective overall picture. And the important thing to note in the answer to this question of what an architect does, talking about the core services provided, is an understanding that as far as I'm concerned, each of those stages come with a design focus. I don't believe that design stops at one of these stages and something else starts. The other part of the question that I posed as of episode one is why an architect does what we do and it extends from my following of Simon Sinek and his idea of people finding your why. And I haven't answered that question explicitly. I might dedicate an episode to it at some point. Arguably, it's implied by the framing I put forward during these podcast discussions where it is solo episodes. But I will dedicate uh, an explicit answer to that question in a future episode. It's certainly something that comes up when I have guests on. Anyway, we're coming to the tail end of that. We've gone through all the core services provided we have got to a point where we've sent developed design documentation describing what we want the builder to build, the design of the layers of the wall from inside to outside, the floor structure, the roof, the ceiling, interface of wall and floor, lots of other components that I've gone through in detail in the tender documentation, tender design stories episodes. And we've given that to the builder and the builders come back and says, this is how much it's going to cost to build the design you have described in drawings and specifications that tell the builder what we want them to build. And this is how long it's going to take. And if that works out, we sign them up. If it doesn't work out, you make alternative arrangements. We can discuss that in another episode, be they reduce the scope to reduce the budget, reduce the quality find some other way of uh, aligning it with the client's vision for cost and time if it doesn't align as it currently stands. Anyway, once that's reconciled, or if you did in fact need to reconcile it, you sign the builder up and it's an exciting milestone. It really is. Now, before I get into that excitement, I want to make a point that comes up a lot. Well, I'm talking about the design focus 
that occurs at various stages. What design focus can there possibly be during construction? We've done the design, we've developed the design, we've told the builder what we want them to build. What's left? What role can an architect have during construction? And that's what we're going to talk about today. But before we do that, as I said, I want to talk about this idea of it being a milestone stage. It's an exciting stage. And this might be obvious for a lot of people, but I just want to stress this because it really is special to get a point where you've recruited. This is maybe an extreme choice of words, but you've probably selected through a process which builder is going to, if you like, take the keys or be given the keys to the kingdom. In other words, realizing the design, which is a response to client vision, who is going to do that? And for me, I work hard on trying to make sure that is a group of what I would call skilled craftspeople and artisans that are an extension of the design team. You know, we have designed or described the design in drawings, which is our art form. They're going to realize that design in built form. So the selection process is quite important there. And the team that does that, we have an expectation on, on delivery. So it's an exciting moment. Arguably the architect has done and the design team have done the bulk of their work. Generally speaking, the biggest part of a architect's deliverables and fees is that tender documentation stage, lots of drawings, lots of development, lots of meetings with clients, and then giving them to a team to go and build it. So that's when their work, that is the artisans, the craftspeople, the builders, <clears throat> excuse me, and their team are going, that's where they have the most work to do. And really what we're doing is looking at that evolution. And it's such an exciting stage. I remember a project that had quite a long lead up to construction. One of the sort of more difficult experiences I'd have with local government. I've had two that are somewhat difficult since but that one in particular, this project took a lot of time to get through council. And so when we did document it and we did get a builder and we were sitting there signing contracts with a builder, you know, the consequences were high now. This project is as real as it's going to get. <clears throat> and after signing these clients, this was in another practice in Chippendale, I didn't see this, but a director at that office, he was returning back from lunch and he saw the clients outside after they signed the contracts with the builder and they were jumping and skipping and high-fiving and hugging each other. They were so excited that it was happening. So it's, it's huge, right? After a long time, potentially between the idea, the vision that a client has, might be written, might be drawn, might be modeled, might be a song, might be who knows. And then that's put to an architect and the design team for them to frame a response in the context of their world, drawings, models, sketches, whatever it might be, and then go through all those other core services that I've said to come out the other end for a builder to start to realize it is, you know, you're so close to the finish line. It's, it's understandable that it's exciting. And for me, working with these truly talented craftspeople and, and, and artisans, as I keep calling them. I remember on that same project, the site was not far from the office where I worked. So I would go uh, regularly, maybe at least once a week to site. And I remember we'd 
detailed, we'd gone to great efforts to detail the steel work. It wasn't just structural steel serving a purpose and then that was going to be concealed by lining. On this project, we expressed the steel because that was consistent or part of the idea for a response to client vision for that project to have these expressed steel elements. And there was a lot of work in that detailing and refinement and working through that with the steel fabricators. And when it finally came to site and you could sit there and see the building outline defined in real time, you could touch the steel, you could see how tall spaces were going to be, you could see the relationship to outside. It was special, for me it was special. I've got to tell you, if it's not coming through on this microphone, I was emotional. I can't recall, it was a while ago now, but I, I feel like I, it was this transcendental moment. I feel like I was almost meditating or, or something. I just, it wasn't a construction site. It felt like this special, I don't know, temple for someone to live in that was coming to realization. And I rang the clients, I said, you've got to come and, and have a look at that. And they were equally as excited. But it's, it's interesting in concept that we're saying to the builder, here's the drawings and you know, off you go. And the off you go in inverted commas is they make a mess. And I'm saying this in the nicest possible way, but the builders, they make a mess. They make an absolute mess. A site that was a greenfield site which is a way you describe a site that uh, is separated from adjoining buildings. So it's a freestanding site. It's not like a terrace that has some walls attached to a neighbor or very close to a neighbor. Uh, it might have landscaping and look like it's overgrown or something and the builder will, you know, remove components of that and excavate and start to moonscape as we call it, make it look anything but like a place on earth, particularly, you know, near the coastline or something, which is where I do a lot of my work in preparation for footings, maybe a below ground rainwater tank, maybe multiple levels of basement. And it looks ruinous. It looks desolate. It doesn't look like at any point that will transform from looking like that to the jewel that will be, hopefully, the end result. And that's an art. That's a skill, that's a special thing to watch. If it's an existing building, seeing it go from, you know, somewhere lived or, or, or where someone worked or maybe it was unoccupied for whatever reasons because it was derelict, whatever it might be, and the builder demolishes part of it and it does, it looks like a war zone. And to go from that to this end product is a special thing to watch. And some of us may have seen some time lapses for towers as they build the basement down. And then slowly but surely, in the context of a time lapse, you see the building go up and up and up and up. It goes down, then it goes up. Quite literally, whatever was there disappears, goes down, is demolished, is leveled, and then they excavate and then they go up. It's a special thing to watch and it's a special thing to experience weekly to see how things are progressing. So, as I say, it's an exciting time, but what role can the architect have? Well, I'm going to talk about two roles and then talk about some design stories associated with both. The first is that the architect can in fact administer the construction contract. Now, this is a passion of mine to an extent. I'll talk about this a little bit further in a second. But what that means is that there are, there are contracts designed for the architect to have an administration role. In the context of that contract, 
that is ultimately between the, a, a contract between the two parties being client and builder. Not all contracts have this, and I'm going to talk about the specific contracts, but that's one role. Part of that role is to answer questions that the builder and their team will inevitably have in regards to realizing the design. And that's the second thing that the architect can also do. Sorry, not also do. The second thing that the architect can do instead of contract administration. So answering questions or contract administration and part of that role is to answer questions in regards to the design. <clears throat> when I say answer questions, this is a term that's referred to through the acronym RFI, a request for information that inevitably comes. We, that is the design team, undertake best endeavors to define the design in the drawings and the documents, uh, specification schedules, you know, within an inch of its life to a degree. There's always going to be one corner or one interface or one component that hasn't been fully considered or might have a discrepancy between one drawing or another drawing or structural drawing and another drawing. That's inevitable. We undertake best endeavors to avoid that, right? But it, it's natural. It happens. The, the question is not whether it happens. The question is how well we can roll with what we have defined to be able to work through an outcome for that that is consistent with the overall response to client vision. And this is the benefit of defining as much of it as possible, that you're not starting from first principles to come up with a response to this question. The question could be something that's not properly defined or that relates to a discrepancy. It could relate to the fact that the material described has a lead time associated with some issue that means it can't be purchased within the time frame of the program. And so you've got to consider alternatives. It could be that there's a, a component that one of the subcontractors or the builder and their team can't realize. I'm going to talk about that a little bit further. And you've got to work through that. It could be that it's part of the existing condition. And try as we might, we aren't born with x-ray vision. So whilst we will do intrusive work where possible to see what the existing condition and the existing building is, the reality is that the builder is going to unveil something that puts a curveball on the situation, that the timber's rotten, that there's termite attack or whatever. And that was concealed and not known until it was uncovered. This is what we call latent conditions. That can happen with existing buildings. It can happen for works below the ground. And so the question is not whether or not that's going to happen. The question is how we build in contingency for that and how we roll with it when it is discovered. So that's what I mean by these RFIs, and I'll give some design examples in a second, but I just want to circle back to contract administration very briefly to talk about this role. Because it's, uh, I, I get a few colleagues in social circles or otherwise that are unaware of the fact that architects can administer construction contracts, that there actually are a suite of contracts specifically designed for architects to administer the contract. Other contracts allow it through special conditions or you know, in certain circumstances, provided the parties agree. But here, the contract's designed for that fact. And it's a set of contracts referred to as ABIC. And before I talk about ABIC, I'm going to stress something important. And that is that I teach contract administration to what we call candidates 
seeking to become architects. So as an architect, when you graduate from university, you can't legally refer to yourself as an architect until you get registered. The registration process, most people do it a bit like what I was telling the story in regards to provisional learners uh, license, driver's license, you know, I did it as soon as I could. Most people try and get their registration as early as you can because, hey, fact is, we've studied for many years, six years for most of us. And to come out of that and not be able to say I'm an architect is a little bit of a disappointment. So everyone, as soon as they can, goes and does this registration process, which involves an examination, an interview. I might dedicate another episode to that. But you come out the other side and you can legally refer to yourself as an architect if, if you pass. But people tend to do it within two to five years of uh, their degree. And a lot of the shortcomings in the experience for candidates to that point is that they haven't been able to observe or participate in construction contract administration with a senior colleague. And so there's a lot of questions relating to this and I talk at length about the concept of these contracts. I'm not going to do that today, so I'm just going to preface this by saying that's not what I'm intending to do. So don't think, oh, now this is going to get really technical and a little bit heavy. That's not what I'm going to do. I just want to talk about the contracts conceptually and the two roles, main broad brush roles, the architect has and what value that can add. So these contracts are called the ABIC suite and they're jointly prepared by the Australian Institute of Architects and the Master Builders Association. The idea being that as a result of it being a joint venture prepared by these two parties, that they equally represent the interests of their, I guess, their constituents, the, the, the people that are connected to those organisations, the MBA being the builders, the AIA being the architects, and by extension, the architects' clients. Now, Many people that have used these contracts or experienced these contracts might say and they feel a bit pro-builder. certainly what the builders might argue. They feel a bit pro-client. Sorry, the other way around. They feel a bit pro-client. The builder might say they feel a bit pro-builder. The client might say the idea is they're supposed to be equally weighted. Whether or not they are is a matter of interpretation, but that's the idea. And under these contracts, the architect has two roles. One, independent assessor in regards to time, cost, quality, and quantity. What that means is that the architect has a position on whether the builder has entitlement under contract to additional cost, to additional time, whether the client's issue with the quality of an installed item or a completed wall that they believe is incomplete or defective, so that's the component of quality. Those items, which as you may recall, are what I call project realization pillars, they're involved, they feature heavily in regards to the contract. The architect's position is the position. Now it's important to note that the architect is not, you know, the highest authority here or like a judge and therefore that their position is the position and that's it. The architect, in my experience on my projects, will be working through the concerns and the issues that the arguing party raises and listen to that and work through that. But ultimately, they're the person, they're the entity under the contract that has the final say. And the idea is that we are impartial, therefore we add a layer of objectivity to the situation. 
we're seeing in the context of the argument that's presented what the contract says and what that means. And the idea is that because we are separated, we're not going to live in the house or work in the space or you know, treat patients in the space. The successful outcome is not something we're going to look at every day and you know, take issue with if it's unsuccessful. We want the design realized properly, no doubt. But the idea is passion is removed because if a build is not performing either through delay or through asking for additional money regularly or whatever the issue might be, we see that on an objective level because we're not going to benefit from the realized outcome. Similarly, we're not being paid for the work that's being challenged or, or tested or criticized and therefore passion is removed on that front. So that's the idea there that we're separating two parties that may despite their best intentions, bring in a, a, an element of emotion or passion that might muddy the waters of their ability to look at something objectively. N not to take away from builders, not to take away from clients, but this is the idea there. And both parties appreciate that because um, I'll be honest, there can get moments where things get quite heated. And the idea is the architect walks in and is able to work through that. The second is that the architect is the client's agent in regards to instructions. So the architect and only the architect can respond to these, what we said before, what RFIs that the builder might have, requests for information that the builder might have. Now, the idea there is not a reflection of the idea to you know, take away power from the client or that the client's not capable of confirming instruction. There's none of that. It's simply that the client might say yes, no, maybe, or let's work through it. And you can interpret that on many levels. The architect will take that confirmation from client and review it against the overall idea for the response to client vision, including the history of how we got to this point in terms of authority approvals and other maybe legislative building code of Australia items or similar. Look at what other consultants done. Just, I suppose what we're saying is that we look at it comprehensively and we respond to it comprehensively. In other words, we might do a drawing, we might do a 3D drawing, we might do something else. And not to take away from the talent of any clients, but that's what we're engaged to do, like provide drawings in response to client vision. And client vision also relates to instructions during the course of construction. And builders appreciate this because they get the right amount of information to fully understand what they now have to do. Now, the thing that might come up in your mind is, this sounds like an authority component, like that the architect could be authoritarian here and maybe make a decision to change something that they weren't happy with in regards to the design over and above the client because ultimately the client has that authority. Well, that's a great question and the response to that is twofold. One, there's obviously ethics. It's not a great thing to be seen as changing a client's selection or detailing without their involvement. So it sort of is almost dead obvious it's insulting. So that will not maintain good relations and that's not a great thing to do. But the contract doesn't say that. It doesn't say the architect will maintain ethics in regards to their instructions to the builder. The thing that does stop that is at the back end, offline, separate to the contract, the client and architect agreement that the architect has with 
the client will stipulate something along the lines of no works, uh, no, sorry, variations to the scope, to the design, to the cost, to the time or program, or however it's worded, will take place without the client's written consent. Meaning that there's a change, there's a discrepancy, there's something that has to be clarified. The architect's going to work through that maybe with the builder, then in isolation, and then bring that to the client for discussion and get their confirmation of going ahead that way before actioning it as an instruction to the builder. Okay, so they're the two roles. Obviously, on top of that, we're looking at progress claims from the builder, we're looking at the works proceeding, we're running site meetings, uh, sometimes fortnightly, sometimes weekly. You know, we're, 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 we're running the project overall. The other role is, as I said, answering these RFIs, so requests for information. Now, this one's interesting because you might be saying, well, hang on, the works have already all been defined. So I gave examples of latent conditions. I also briefly mentioned the fact that there may be occasions where a subcontractor or builder cannot achieve a detail and is asking the question as to how to proceed. There's also examples when the effort to get a price is so critical and time is potentially dragging out and the client and their team, whether they're an organization, a company that's small or big, that has a deciding project control group team, or maybe it's mum and dad family or whatever it might be, they're unable to commit to a component. They can't decide on the final tile selection for a bathroom or joinery is a common one in houses that the final details for the kitchen can't fully be worked through. And in that case, we have a listing in the contract for a provisional sum. We put a sum of money that's provisional. That means that come the time of uh, the start of construction, the builder will confirm when they need that design to be described so that they can price it and build it. So that's an extreme example in some respects. You like to have as few of them as possible. But there's an obvious example of where you are literally doing design on the run during construction. And the architect obviously has a role there because that design has to be done in concert with the overall response to client vision, the general design response to the project. But that's maybe a more explicit, obvious one. And I have had examples where I've had steel stair uh, as provisional and the benefit of having the builder's team there is that you can see it. And it was quite a lovely moment on this project. It was a warehouse uh, conversion in Alexandria where we were, had these quite raw expressed steel stairs with um, uh, expressed steel components. They weren't lined, they were finished as raw steel or finished in painted steel, galvanized. I won't go into the design, but more the experience that when the builder said, we need to work through this design and it's great that you don't have to make certain assumptions that might result in it being too expensive, take too long or, or both. You can sit with the steel fabricator who is going to produce the stair and talk about a general design vision, sorry, a response to client vision that is the design then and there. And it was a special moment for me and a steel fabricator and the builder to have these one, two hour sessions. We, I think we had like two of them and I would draw things in 3D and, you know, not, not to sound, you know, arrogant or anything, but I could see they really enjoyed and they actually confirmed later that they really enjoyed watching me do that. 
Because builders build and they build well. Like it's a hard thing to get a wall up level, straight, true, plumb, ready for plasterboard, ready for painting, steel, free of galvanized uh, defects and the like. Like that's an art, that's a craft. And I, I hold true to that. But not all of them can draw, and that's certainly not my expectation that they can draw, and they describe things either through you know, their hands or words or similar, and I sit there interpreting what they're describing as drawing and show them, and there's an objective description. You know, there's no, you can't really say that a drawing, I mean, you can, but it's harder to say that you know, what that drawing described was subject to interpretation versus words. And they enjoyed that. I enjoyed that. I enjoyed sitting with the artisans talking in real time about a detail and how to achieve that and a better alternative that would maybe be a bit cheaper or faster or whatever. And so that did happen in real time for a provisional sum item, in this case relating to steel stairs. But another more subtle version, I suppose, it's not quite as extreme as that, is where you have defined it in detail. In this example, I'm going to talk about a kitchen where the client was keen to do something other than a stone bench top. Now this, to be clear here, this is not a judgment on stone bench tops. I've done many projects with stone bench tops, many kitchens with stone bench tops. It's an elegant material, it's, it's fantastic. You can detail it well. This is not a reflection. Anyone who goes home and sees a kitchen bench top to say, oh no, I better rethink this. So I'm just gonna have a, hmm a drink of my coffee that my wife has given me before it gets too cold. It's, uh, yeah, where was I? The fact that the client wasn't keen on a stone bench top is the client's personal vision. They thought that the house, and obviously I agreed with this, had a more, not explicitly heritage feel, like it didn't feel overtly heritage, didn't have high decorative features necessarily, but it did have features, and I would say it had more features than, you know, contemporary, more contemporary houses. And as a consequence, she felt like stone wasn't the right response. Not to go through the history, but we moved to brass. We moved to a brass flat plate of uh, as a bench top. You know, literally six millimeters of brass as the top to the bench. I'd done it before at another practice. And when we think about six centimeters, that's the width of your index finger, more or less, or my index finger, my three-year-old daughter's index finger would be thinner. Talking about an adult, the general thickness of an adult index finger. So a real fine, crisp line to the top. And we were quite excited as that being an ex uh, a specific response to client vision. And that client went to a, to a, a, a pub in an area of Sydney to see how it looked and, and had a drink and saw it, saw it in real time, saw how it aged, I'm talking about aged brass, and was quite excited by it. And we said, okay, look, we know it's probably going to come with a price tag. We know it might come with a lead time issue. It might alienate some joiners that are not experienced with doing this. I mean, it, I wasn't reinventing the wheel because I'd done it before and I know who had supplied the material to do it before. But at the same time, it's not done in every second kitchen necessarily. And that's why we mentioned the price tag and the alienation component. But we were excited by it. And look, I went to three builders to provide a price because really we're defining that and we're getting feedback from the market in terms of cost, in terms of time, also in terms of buildability, which is another component. And two of them put a price to it. 
no issue, the joiner knows a metal fabricator or they know a metal fabricator, it can be achieved, fine. But one builder said they can't, their joiner can't do it. And as a consequence, we need to change the design to a folded brass sheet, so not a plate anymore, folded brass sheet, or to change it to stone or some other material that's that the joiner's more used to doing. And obviously at that point, you've got to take note and say, okay, where is this coming from? Because I'm looking at it, two out of three are saying yes, one saying no, and to change the design. And a folded brass sheet, whilst elegant, is a different look. Instead of it being six millimeters, 0.6 centimeters, it would have been almost 10 times the, the size and uh, five centimeters, 50 millimeters. And it would have had more distinct rolled corners. Some might say that you can fold brass sheet to six or 10 millimeters. In this case, that's not what they were saying. So it would be quite a different look and we'd have to really change the design. And we had to work through that. Okay, so there's a couple of things that had to be worked through. What does it mean? What's the benefit in terms of cost? What's the benefit in terms of time? And what does that mean in the consequence of the impact this decision will have on the response to client vision, the overall design? Is that acceptable? You know, um, the reality is that this is one builder where two are saying it's okay. So can the builder find another joiner? That's easier said than done because the success of a builder, you know, the, the, the saying goes, a builder is only as good as their team and their team is a lot of individuals, subcontractors, the other artisans, and their talent, their skill set is aligning themselves, in my opinion, with subcontractors that can achieve these details that may not be everyday details. They understand that there's a design detailing component to this that not every subcontractor can necessarily do or is necessarily interested in. And so finding that team, those professionals that do deliver on time, that do deliver to a particular quotation, that's something the builders have developed over time. And to just say, well, can't you find another person is really harsh and difficult because then that builder is exposing themselves to the risk of dealing with someone new and that person maybe not delivering. And that's a tricky thing to balance. So I had to really take this seriously. And, you know, on one hand, you're calling a bluff. On another hand, you're accepting the fact that you've got to, you've got to work through the issue. It's a collaboration. We've got artisans. We've got this new design team. So let's work through what the options are. What does this mean? And we did. And in the end, that builder found another joiner that could do the brass plate and went from there. So there's one example. And I think what I'm trying to get at there is that with the architect there to say, okay, it would be easy to just say, let's make it 50 mil or there's a cost issue or there's a time issue. But the architect is there calling the bluff, arguing professionally whether or not that's linked to the fact that they just haven't allowed for it or really is there no one in New South Wales that can achieve this? And the reality might be yes, but the client will feel more pressure to maybe accept that as gospel in the absence of an architect. And I want to be clear here that I'm not saying that all you know builders are bullies or anything necessarily. There's genuine concerns associated with realizing certain components and we've got to work through them, but we have to work through them. Like a really simplistic example is when a builder says, oh, I can build the whole thing faster and cheaper if you don't do the first floor addition. Well, that's overtly um, like almost a 
just way too simplistic example of a way to save time and save cost looking at those pillars of project realization. But the consequence is a reduction in quality in the amount of space available, which relates to quantity. And so the architect will be there saying, oh, hold on, well, what does that mean? Now that's way too simplistic example, but here's another example I'm going to end the discussion on. And that's in regards to plant, material mechanical components for a particular project in, in Bondi where halfway through construction, maybe a quarter, I can't remember, somewhere between a quarter of the way to halfway through construction, the client made a decision to change from a gas hot water unit to an electric ambient uh, heat pump. So a, a modern contemporary version of an electric hot water unit. And we got the uh, supplier to come in and talk about it and he spoke about the benefits, the energy usage, how big it is, how it works, and you know, it was, it was great. But I was there thinking, okay, where are we gonna put it? And what are all the parts that we need to consider and where are we gonna put those? And that didn't come up till the end as a result of me asking the question. So we knew we needed the unit itself, which is a, you know, it's a cylindrical prism, uh, maybe around 1.8 meters tall, half a meter in diameter. We found a location for that in uh, some joinery to a bedroom. So that was okay, it's concealed, it's not, it's not there. The design vision in this case was to not express the mechanical plant. It didn't really work with the look of the house. But then there was this condenser unit, which is what you see for air conditioning units. And when air conditioning units really became a thing and they are retrofitted, unfortunately, those older buildings, or at least the way the air conditioning was applied to them, was not done, I suppose, harmoniously. It's like, well, let's get the air conditioning units on. And as a consequence, you'll drive around and you see many examples of a condenser unit or the, um, the discharge unit to an air conditioning unit just being attached to the side of the building. And I don't personally think that's the best outcome for cities and the general urban setting. Anyway, that's what it is. And if we have a chance now, I'd really like to avoid that being the case. The uh, supplier said that's normally what happens. We attach it to the side of the building. And everyone sort of said, okay, except for me. <laughs> I, was, I was of the opinion, look, we need to look at an alternative. That's not a great outcome to see on the side of this refined, elegant, detailed building, this rectangular prism. Uh, in addition to that, there's also noise output from this unit that would be very close to the boundary that would not be compliance with the approved conditions of town planning consent that state that you need to maintain certain noise levels uh, against the boundary. So you can see that the design issues are numerous. And with the architect there to say, actually, we need to find another place to locate it. We, the site manager and I were able to find another place to locate it. And the site manager, talented individual, was able to get it underneath the house in a section that had screens uh, in front of it that you could slide across to access bins and other utility underneath the front of the house. And uh, also this, uh, this condenser unit. And so the point I'm getting to there is something as utilitarian as mechanical, what we call plants. It's an interesting way to describe mechanical equipment. In building terms, we call it mechanical plants. That could have been this uh, thing that I would have thought would be to the detriment of the overall design.
but with the architect there realizing or appreciating the overall look of the project, saying that that is a little bit jarring and consistent with the response to client vision, let's find an alternative that could take place. And that's what happened. Now, there's been other examples where uh, clients have said, look, it's a side passageway that you don't often go down and uh, you know it's a cheaper way to do it. And the architect will still say, look, I don't think that's a great result. And the client can say, understand what you're saying or uh, the point being they can agree or disagree. It's not like the architect is an authority necessarily to say, if you don't do this, you know, I throw my hands up in defeat. That's not what I'm saying. But the architect is able to frame what would be a far more convenient solution for the builder and their subcontractor may be not in concert in keeping with the response to client vision. All right, so there's a couple of stories as examples, the great collaboration that I believe that exists through the artisans and the craftsmen, craftspeople. Sorry, and it's a real joy for me. I still, many years on from my first project being realized on site, get a little bit of a, yeah, I get a bit effusive, I get a bit emotional when I see projects broken ground and evolve to being no longer drawings, but actually spaces you can realize, you know, in real time, doors you can open, lights you can turn on, sunlight that comes through and changes in pattern, in tone, in texture. It's a really exciting thing and I'm grateful that I've surrounded myself with craftsmen, craftspeople and artisans that are able to realize these projects. And I look forward to having them on the show at some point. We're going to talk about their experience and how they work through things. We're also going to talk about a concept which we refer to as early contractor involvement. I made a brief point about how we've made some assumptions about how things might go together, but the builder might have a different way of doing it in the example of the steel fabricated stair. Early contractor involvement means that those assumptions are reduced to the smallest amount because the builder is there with us documenting, drawing, defining, detailing it from the beginning. Anyway, that's it for me for this episode. Thank you so much for listening to the end. If you thought this was relevant to a colleague, a client, someone in your social circles, please do share it. It really helps. If you can leave a review, that would also be fantastic. Or subscribe to the show. Until next time, thank you again. We'll see you again. You've been listening to What Is and What Could Be with Michael Clark Architect. Bye for now.